0: On that day, and it's referring to, of course, the day that Stephen was stoned to death. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went now there's there's a couple of comments uh, before I really get into the meat of the message that I want to make about the the burial of Stephen, the mourning of Stephen. I want to notice first what that stoning of Stephen. The series of events that that created, that caused, that was the catalyst for things that happened. But I also want to alert you to the biggest point of my message today, which it'll take me a while to get to it. I'll end up on this note. But this is what I'm working my way towards as I make these other comments and... and, uh, Commentary about the stoning, about the, the burial. Uh, <clears throat> the title of my sermon is A Biblical Theology of Suffering. Now, I know when I'm going to talk about suffering, I'm going to include everybody in this building today. We all suffer sometimes. We need a biblical theology of suffering. And I'm going to break one of the primary rules of preaching this morning. One of the rules is I don't get up and suggest to you something that will put you in the wrong mood. I don't prophesy you're going to hate this. Because some people are very cooperative. All right, then we will. But I want to prep you for what's coming. We're talking about a biblical theology of suffering. The hard fact of the matter is this is going to be a very difficult thing for people to accept and get their brain around. And rather than dwelling on the prophecy, you're not going to like this and you're probably going to reject this. And I don't want to, what I want to do is take the opposite approach. I'm begging you, don't reject this. This is very difficult, but I am pleading with you. I implore you. You need to adopt a biblical theology of suffering. Your life can be literally revolutionized. If you can do this, and it's not an easy thing to do, it takes a tremendous discipline of thought and mind to be able to operate with a biblical theology of suffering. And for some, it's probably going to be easier to say, forget that. I'd rather suffer. I'd rather feel the way I do about suffering. I'd rather wallow in my pool of self-pity than to try and do what you're asking me to do. We'll get to that. Now, let me just kind of lay that on the shelf for a minute. I'll take it back down in a minute. The stoning of Stephen was a catalyst for a number of different things. First of all, we notice as Luke had written this account that the community is noted for mourning the loss of Stephen. And it says in the second verse, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Godly men, we don't read Greek. It's a disadvantage uh, for us because we don't read Greek. Because there are sometimes implications in that original language that escape us when it comes over into English. I don't read Greek. I just am faintly acquainted with some Greek words, and I have tried a few primers to try and learn Greek, and it's very challenging, and uh, I'm, just, I'm just a novice, just a beginner on sitting down and trying to write read actual Greek text, and I can pick out a few words from time to time, but I don't understand the nuances of Greek when I'm reading it, <clears throat> So, we're at a disadvantage. We've got a translation that does its best to convey the basic meaning of the Greek. Godly men. Luke used that word most of the time. The Bible used that word. The Greek used that word. Godly men. Most of the time, referring to Jews. This would be a rare exception if... He used that word to refer to the Christian community. But that doesn't mean he could not have or did not use that word. We're just saying that if we're going to try and, uh, you know, the harmonizing of Scripture, which is kind of a, a guideline for how we interpret words, we would be heavily influenced to think that what Luke said is some of the Jewish community deeply mourned the death of Stephen. It doesn't make any difference really if it was the Jewish community or the Christian community. Luke conveys this very faithfully, and that is somebody mourned. And if it's the Jewish community, what happened in essence is these Jewish leaders who broke out into this rage, this insane rage, and launched their attack against Stephen, there were bystanders who saw that and they said, something's not good about this. This is not right. And it could have been that their attempt to execute Stephen backfired on them. It could have been that was an influence, an incentive for some of the Jewish people to finally say, I've had enough of this. I understand our law, but this was a good man. This was an innocent man. He didn't do anything wrong. And at that point, it could have persuaded them more into Christianity rather than discouraged Christianity. The only reason I bring this point up is sometimes the devil's plans backfire on him. Sometimes he tries his best to fight. And in the effort to do that, to to, to fight the techniques he uses, sometimes inspires people all the more to come to Jesus. Somebody was mourning here. And it was rightfully so. The community, to some degree, took notice. And the the mourning that they did, as Luke describes it, infers a very deep and demonstrative mourning. This was a part of the Jewish culture, and of course, there was very much uh, a, a Jewish culture influence in this. In this region here, but but even the Christians, uh, many of them were con- already converts from Judaism, so they carried Judaistic cultural behaviors with them. And when when they when they mourned, uh, they made a big production out of it. Y- you read in the Old Testament uh, the sackcloth and the and the ashes as you changed your garment and dressed in very uh, humble. Uh, sackcloth and went out and found uh, old ashes and smeared them all over your face. We are not a culture that is accustomed to doing that. Not to say we don't like to draw our attention to ourselves when we've got a bone to pick. We've got our own cultural ways of doing that. We mope, you know, we drag when we walk. We slump our shoulders. We want people to notice. It's our equivalent of sackcloth and ashes. Somebody just comes dragging in and and you can tell right away, boy, they've got issues today. Luke tells us that the Stoney of Stephen served to throw fuel on the flames of anti-Christian bigotry. Hidden behind this narrative that we're reading... This great revival that we have read so far in the book of Acts that was sweeping through Jerusalem. Hidden behind this narrative of the birth of the church and the miraculous revival of the thousands that get saved is the hidden fact that there is this smoldering disdain for what is going on. There is this hatred brewing and boiling and coming to a breaking point against this new movement, this jealousy, this anger. And we don't see it all the time in the book of Acts as we're rejoicing with the revival, but it's there. You see little evidences of it whenever uh, Peter and John are hauled before the council and they are reprimanded and you've got to stop this. You can see Little evidences of it. But then it just manifests itself and comes to the surface in the, in the stoning of Stephen as they can't stand it anymore. This has been brewing in their, in their hearts and their minds and their spirits. Until finally they just launch on this stoning, this, this horrible uh, execution of a godly man. This movement in the Jews' eyes is getting out of hand. The Jews feel like they're losing control over their own people as people are defecting from their Judaism and joining up with Jesus and joining up with these, these Christian followers of Christ. And we don't get this sense of how explosive this is in this community until we see them martyr Stephen. Then we go, oh my they really had it bad on that day scripture says not the next day not the next week on that day the day stephen was stoned great persecution broke out against the church can you imagine that, that act of picking up those stones and stoning Stephen caused part of the community to immediately mourn but it, it 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 launched it ignited a riot among the angry Jewish leaders who said that's all we needed to get this movement this hate movement started at Christianity and they started going out everywhere now inspired by this stoning and looking for victims themselves Searching the city for who they could persecute. Among them a young man named Saul who was even more inspired by this. Thinking we're on a roll now. We've got them running scared. We can do this. We must work feverishly. We must wipe this out before it goes any farther. And that stoning of Stephen inspired the opposition to even greater acts of hatred and persecution than had happened to this point catapulting these highly charged Jews into this riotous frenzy. They begin this massive assault against all converts. And the Bible says all of them scattered except the apostles. There's few things more dangerous than than a, a crazed, riotous mob. And we've seen evidence of that in the news just in the past few years. Word quickly spread among the Christian converts about the stoning of Stephen because they weren't all there, but word spread. And that a rabid mob was now sweeping the city looking for more victims and Christian converts were immediately confronted with the task of having to make a decision. What do we do? Are we going to stay? Are we going to leave? They didn't have time to really pack up sufficiently and go. They just left. They had to abandon houses. They had to leave possessions behind. They had to move quickly. Persecution was coming. And they fled into Judea. They fled into Samaria. As quickly as they could put together whatever they had to put together, they left the city. Persecution's coming. And because of this, the next thing that we say happened because of the stoning of Stephen is literally Christian missions was born. It was inaugurated at that point. And you see how these, all of these things come together to fulfill God's plan for Christianity and ministry anyway this is an excellent example if you want to kind of bookmark this in your brain of god leveraging adversity to advance his cause and just the just the same way that we think of joseph being sold into bondage and ultimately working out to where he was He was the key man in place to rescue his own family when the famine came. You see how adversity worked out to the advancement of God's purpose? So here is a New Testament example of how God leverages adversity to advance his cause. Stephen is stoned. Christians are scattered. And what's the first thing they do when they're scattered? They preach. Now, how many of you think that all those people who scattered out of Jerusalem, when they got saved, said, I think I would like to be a preacher. That was the last thing on their mind when they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. They just heard the good news. This is the Messiah. He was crucified. He resurrected, he is alive, he has sent his Holy Spirit, they, This, all of this they believed it, they said yeah that makes sense to us, we believe it and they began to follow the apostles and come under the teaching of the apostles and you've got to understand there's, there's probably, it was not a part of their mentality their mindset whatsoever to say now that I'm saved I think I want to pastor a church Now that I'm saying, I think I want to be evangelists. No, they were just newborn Christians with a newborn theology. That's all they were. But do you find it interesting that whenever the conflict came, whenever the persecution came, they just didn't flee. They fled and they preached. People like you. They fled and they preached. They didn't run away from their Christianity. They didn't just run away from their persecutors. Wherever they went, they started to tell people the thing that was most important in their life. And that was their conversion to Jesus Christ. And I have to look at us today and say, I wonder if we are telling people the most important thing in our life. Is your conversion to Christ the most important thing in your life? And are you telling people about that? These people were so inspired to share that. But are we? How many... Days, how many weeks, how many months do you go without telling somebody the most important thing in your life? The day that you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Ann and I were watching a movie last night. Some of you know Russ Taff. He's been a popular Christian singer for many, many, many years. First came to popularity with the Imperials, and then he had a solo career. He's been on many Bill Gaither uh, uh, tapes, videos, uh, and there is a movie about him. He, he, him and his wife, they made this movie. I still believe. It's available on DVD. It's available on Amazon Prime. If you have that, I recommend you watch it. It's a story of a man that had gone through a a, a horrible time of conflict in his life, and was able to come through that and be restored by God. And I don't want to. I don't want to put any spoilers out there. I just want to say it's a good movie. You need to watch it. But at the height, at the pinnacle of his fame, his success, this young man, just phenomenal talent, was nominated for uh, Grammys. And and, was, and won a Grammy. And they're at the Grammys. You know, Grammys is not just Christian music. That's a category of the Grammys. So You've got all these people here. He's talking about there's the Pointer Sisters back there. And there's James Brown over there. And here I am. And they call up Russ Taff. And he goes up. And he walks up to the podium to accept his Grammy Award. And he says, uh, he basically says, I, I want to just say that I'm so thankful 2,000 years ago that Jesus gave his life that I could be saved, and uh, some of these people at the Grammys that had a church background began to, to rejoice and praise God and and uh, support him. And he come back and he, he sat down in in the in the seat behind James Brown, and James Brown turned around and said, "I like what you said." <laughs> there is an opportunity. Somebody, a Christian artist, who gets up and gives glory to God. And shares the gospel message in 30 seconds. 2,000 years ago he died for me and I'm so grateful for it. And planted a seed. It It was important. That was important in his life. And you know, do you take advantage of those opportunities in your life to share with somebody else the most important thing in your life? That shouldn't be sitting on the shelf of our life. If it's important to you. How many of you the most important thing in your life is that 2,000 years ago Jesus died so you could be saved? Is that the most important thing in your life? Then we should train ourselves to be ready to share that with people who need the same kind of salvation that you have, who need the joy, the happiness, the the, the eternal security that you feel in knowing that God has, has provided for you for eternity. They need that. There's a lost and hurting world out there. And really the secret... Of the success of the church doesn't lie in trying to get hope and pray that somebody walks into a building on Sunday and here's our preacher and walks down and, and and kneels at an altar and gets saved the secret of the church and the successful, uh, success and faithfulness of the church is that you are so excited about what God has done to you that you go out there into the darkness and you tell people what he's done for you and you lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the effectiveness of the church. George Herbert Walker Bush ran for President Office of the United States on a campaign slogan of envisioning a thousand points of light that kind of resonated with people instead of just having one big governmental answer it's all these little resources out there where people are meeting the needs and that's how that was translated when we began to meet the needs of others well you know Jesus understood the concept of a thousand points of light a long time before George or Herbert Walker Bush ever came along, you are the light of the world. No man lights a candle and puts it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. He gives light unto all that are in the house. That men may see your let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Is your light shining? Are people seeing something in you that is glorifying God? So I, I I see this incident in Acts where they're scattered, but the first thing they do is I got to tell you what's going on in my life. I got to tell you about Jesus. I got to tell you the good news. Now the second noteworthy thing about this particular part, they they those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went is this they were more missionaries and evangelists than they were just simply refugees but in that we have this we have this conundrum we have this difficulty because we're probably tempted to look at this and say now all of them fled except the apostles and maybe even adopt a what uh, an attitude of uh, a question What's wrong with these people that they weren't willing to stay there and get persecuted? You know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a negative take on this we have to be aware of. Were they wrong for fleeing? Were they wrong for running? Well, the fact that they fled, I don't know how to make a moral assessment of that. I know one thing, there were 12 Men there, of course they had a replacement, but there were at least 11 men there and and a replacement, but they had been trained how not to run. They had been personally trained and hardened by Jesus through three years of intense training of what it was going to take to follow him. These other people hadn't been trained in anything. They didn't know how not to run. They were baby Christians. So maybe not the same was expected of them. Maybe God gave them a pass. Maybe had they been more mature, they may not have been inspired to run, but they may have said, well, let's just stay here. But in God's perfect plan, he used the youthfulness and the and the, and maturity, the, the childlike uh, people that were saved who, who were going to be scattered because they didn't have the strength of faith to stay, to, to take the gospel and put it into Judea and into Samaria, where it was, which was a part of the whole commission, the, 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 the commission that was given, the great commission to, given anyway, to take the gospel. Into other parts of the world, and God used those circumstances, all of those things lining up just perfectly, where the, the maybe the weaker in the faith are the ones that were scattered, but they also took the seed with them, and they planted it, it all it's all good. God works it all out for His benefit, and all they needed to do this was a little shove <laughs> that 's what they got. Sometimes the things that are moving us, and we think, I don't know, this works into my plans. I wasn't planning to commit myself to Christianity and then have to move my family out of here just to survive. But sometimes those little shoves are just what God is going to use to bring you to the place where he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to be doing. You'll you'll notice that in your life. Some of you have been living for God a long time you might have already seen that where you ended up in, in places where you didn't expect to end up and you went places you weren't really wanting to go but it was exactly the right place to be and the right thing to do because God has a wonderful way of making sense out of nonsense. God will often use your circumstances no matter how weird they may seem to put you in the position he wants you to be in. You might move out of fear or concern, but it might be the thing that brings you to the place where God wants you to be. You might might think you're surrendering or it's a concession to hell, but God has a way of using that to bring you to the place where he wants you to be. Sometimes it's just reckless to stay and fight unnecessary battles just because you want to be stubborn. Or you want to be carelessly committed to a cause. And the only way to know the difference between these two things is just to have an ear tuned to the Holy Spirit. To know the difference between shamelessly retreating or just strategically regrouping by following the leading of the Spirit. You know, Paul had to make decisions sometimes. About whether it was the wise thing to stay there and try and minister against the adversaries, or whether it was a wise thing to pack up and go somewhere else, it wasn't always the best thing, even for Paul to say well they're not they're going they're not going to run me out. I came here to proclaim the gospel, and they're ha- going to have to kill me before I leave, but that wasn't God's plan. Sometimes they had to sneak him out, and that wasn't retreating, that wasn't running. That was just allowing the Holy Spirit to do something else in his life other than what he had planned. There's no indication whatsoever that God shamed those who fled Jerusalem. It looks like they did the only sane and right thing they knew how to do. And God worked with that. It says the apostles stood firm. Everybody scattered except the apostles. They never flinched. They stared down the opposition. They refused to tuck tail and run. There was still work to be done in Jerusalem and somebody had to do it. And they were tooled up. They were trained. They were geared up to do it. It demonstrated the quality of their character. It demonstrated the effectiveness of the training they got to do just that. Jesus trained them and told them, be prepared for some persecution. Don't be surprised what they do to me if they do it to you too. He prepared them. And here they had an opportunity to show what it means. What are you going to do in the face of persecution? These men stood firm. And that's what more mature people who have been prepared for such things ought to be ready to do. The best records we have much of it is just tradition but the best records we have indicate that probably 11 of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death we believe that john exiled to patmos died of old age but he was died in, in prison the rest of them were executed they were martyred for their faith can, can, can you get your brain around that jesus hand 12 men that he knows are going to die for him. One of them flaked out. One of them lived out his life in prison. The rest of them, they met a violent end to their death. Now, where does that make sense? That the people you pick out to be the foundation stones for the church you're going to build, how does that work out that they all get killed off? Doesn't that kind of stop the project? Doesn't that kind of abort the church? No. It was the blood of the apostles that continued to feed and nourish the advancement of the church. So when he called them and he told them, take up your cross and follow me, he was telling them, come and die with me. I don't know how many people you're going to get to sign up for that if they know that's what that means. Now I come to the part that I told you I wanted to get to, the theology of suffering. And I told you at the beginning of this series in Acts, the one underlying theme you will see as we go through the book of Acts, chapter after chapter after chapter, with very few exceptions, one or two exceptions, every chapter is filled with the conflict, the pressure, the persecution that comes against the Christians, the suffering that they endure because of that. That is a major theme of Acts and the advancement of the work in spite of that. Acts is full of that. So here we see an evidence of that as I warned you this would happen. The theme of Acts very much is persecution against the church and the church surviving and advancing regardless. Now, when we think about Acts, and I have fellow Christian ministers that do this as well. When we think about the book of Acts, we always think, I just wish we had an Acts type of church. Because when we think of Acts, we think of all this fun stuff that happens. An Acts type of church where the Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost. An Acts type of church where Paul lays on Eutychus and raises him back to life. An Acts type of church where demons are cast out of people. An Acts type of church where revival breaks out in Jerusalem and breaks out in Samaria. An Acts type of church. We want an Acts type of church. Because we don't like to think about the other side of the story very clearly and very powerfully being told in the book of Acts. And that is the Acts church was a church that was heavily persecuted. And we want all the good without praying for the bad. We want the church that raises the dead and opens the blind eyes that casts out the demons. We just don't want a church that has to be persecuted. And I'm not so sure that we're going to get much of the first until we're ready and willing to endure the last. The church is built to endure conflict. That is necessary to advance its cause. The church is endured, is built to endure the missiles launched against it from hell. That's what we're built for. We are a machine that is built to endure hardship and conflict. Old ships that they used to build back in the Civil War days. You know, they had wooden boats. Wooden boats weren't very good when you started. Getting into explosive devices, cannonballs. They build the old iron sides, take the wooden ships and they put the iron on it. This one is built for war. This one is built to resist the attack. The old ship of Zion is the ship of Zion. It's, it's built for war, it's built to resist the attacks, it's built to be out there in the middle of the conflict. That's what is going to happen with the church. These people running around, I'm looking for a church that doesn't have any conflict. You're looking for a carnival cruise is what you're looking for. The ship of Zion is designed to be in battle. We're not offering any carnival cruises here. People have a very poor theology of suffering. They have a very unscriptural theology of suffering. Most people understandably tend to view suffering as a very undesirable thing that we must try to avoid by all means at all times. On every level we do that. You ought to see our medicine cabinet. I don't know what all those bottles of stuff are for. You know what it all adds up to? Just as many ways of alleviating suffering as we can afford. We got bottles there for suffering leg cramps. We got bottles there for back cramps. We got bottles there for headaches. We got bottles there. You don't have to suffer. Just buy your relief and your solution. Well, that's where it all starts because we don't like to suffer, right? All I have to do as a pastor and get up and just just tip my hand to the congregation. I'm suffering a little bit. And I don't know how many people are going to meet me before they hit that door and tell me, this is what you need to do to relieve your suffering. It works. If I did all the things that people tell me to do to relieve my suffering, (laughs) I could make a television series, a reality show out of it. So how does this work about, let's elevate the suffering up to the level of suffering as Christians? We, We carry that same mentality. We shouldn't have to suffer. If we do, we, we, need, we need to change churches. We, we need to get a divorce. If we're, we're, if we're suffering, we need to, to res- resign our post. We need to change jobs. We, need to, you know, we don't like to suffer. We make adjustments in our life so we don't do that because we hate it and it's wrong and it's from hell and it's nasty and it's no good. We need to change our theology about suffering. First of all, let me suggest to you Suffering for the cause of Christ or in the course of serving Christ is, number one, a very normal thing. And so if you are sitting there and saying, why me? Knock it off. If it's because you are serving God, it's because you're serving God. And don't you pretend we shouldn't have to do this. Of course you will. Probably not to the extent that your forebears have done. Not to the extent that the martyrs have done. Not to the extent Stephen did. But to some extent. And to certainly to an extent that many of your Christian brothers and sisters on the other side of the globe are enduring right now. It's normal. Get used to it. The early church... Knew absolutely nothing about the prosperity gospel. They didn't know anything about health, wealth. This is your best life yet. They didn't know anything about that. I'll tell you, some of these books that are being sold today and some of these sermons that are being preached today would not have gone over very well, dear to that Book of Acts crowd. That was foreign concept to them. When they had merely believed Jesus and suddenly the persecutors were coming after them and their family. You got this name it and claim it preacher over there. All you've got to do is just name it and claim it in the name of Jesus. You're not going to suffer. Dear God, you're not going to suffer and claim it in the name of Jesus. What are you going to do? The persecutors are going to run? The first thing the early church did understand about following Christ, they immediately understood it was going to cost them something. The modern day church is pounded with another gospel that says, following God will reward you handsomely, and your life has never been better if you follow him. And there's no biblical message there whatsoever. We suffer and we struggle as individuals. We suffer and we struggle collectively as a church. Because the church storms the gates of hell, and hell doesn't like it, and hell attacks. Second century Christian apologist, Tertullian, had an opportunity to speak before the rulers of the Roman Empire, and he warned them. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us. Grind us to dust. The more you mow us down. The more we will grow. Because the seed is the blood. Of Christians. Number two. Concerning suffering. God. Is revealed. In the times of our suffering. In dimensions. That we will otherwise. Never experience. Notice. for the moment. Notice that pinnacle moment when Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. When was it? It was right there when this thing had heated to its hottest temperature. And he had brought them to a boiling point and they were ready to murder him and the Bible says, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you realize when you go through your harshest times, that's when the Holy Spirit comes into you in ways that He never comes to you when you're sitting there with a bag of popcorn and watching TV? It's in your trials. It's in your conflict. It's in your suffering that the Holy Spirit ministers most deeply to you. I listened to the testimony of a fellow pastor he was rather young I would say at that time he's probably in his 30s at a district council council meeting years ago that he got a strange illness and he endured this for months he grew weaker and weaker until finally he was literally in the hospital at the very brink of death they did not know if he was going to pull through He did miraculously pull through. Very gradually, very slowly, he began to regain his strength. It took months to recover. Stood on the district council floor and told, gave his testimony of what he went through and his near-death experience. And then he said this, and I'll not forget this as long as I don't lose my mind. He said, I came to know God in a way I had never known Him before. Can you imagine a minister of the gospel? We preach him. We teach him. We try to take com- you know, get command of his word. Uh, we pray. We walk with him. We, we praise him. We worship him. And we come to that point and said, man, I didn't even know him until I suffered. And he came and ministered to me and revealed to me dimensions of himself I never knew existed. And we think we know God because you've attended church how many years? We think we know God because how many times you read the Bible through? We think we know God. But you'll learn more about Him during your hard times and your suffering than you ever have learned through any of those other experiences. And isn't that of any value to know God in ways you've never known Him before? Is that of any value to you whatsoever? Shouldn't that change your theology of suffering when we say, we don't want to suffer. Don't you want to know God? If suffering is going to come anyway, aren't you glad there's something good to come out of it? We can come into a personal relationship with God. We can come to an intimate knowledge of God. We never would have found any other way. Oh. Problems I have been through, the, the things I have suffered through as a pastor throughout my life have been the moments that have taught me more about God and brought me into a closer relationship with it than anything else that has ever happened. When I've seen God do wonderful, miraculous things, that's been great, but I learned more about him when I was suffering. Why? say so we need a different theology of suffering. Paul said, Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings. And I want to become like him in his death. And I don't hear a lot of people praying that. Lord bless us. Lord, keep us safe. Lord, bring us joy and happiness and keep peace in our family and peace in our church. And that's not that those things are bad, but we just never, never, ever pray, Lord, I want to suffer like Jesus. I want to die like Jesus. And what level of Christianity do you have to get to to even be able to pray a prayer like that? But it's a willingness. It's not that Paul was really relishing how great that's going to be when he gets to partake of his sufferings. But he he understood that he was willing to do that because something great comes out of that, that nothing else can do the same thing for you except that. Now, rather than dread suffering, this is kind of how I'm summarizing this. We are biblically most definitely told to anticipate it. Not dread it. So if you're going to have a biblical theology of suffering, stop dreading the suffering. Accept it. It's going to happen. Anticipate it. Prepare for it. And whenever you do begin to suffer, look for what God is going to do in your life that will be priceless for you to possess. That's how you have a good theology of suffering. Rather than allowing those times of personal suffering in your past... How many of you suffered in your past? May I see your hands? Now I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on the next question. How many of you are continuing to suffering today because of that suffering in your past? There are some of you that could probably raise your hand and say, I'm still suffering. I suffered then. I'm suffering now. I'm going to die suffering. That is so unbiblical. Instead of still suffering for what has happened in your past... You are to see the priceless enrichment you can gain from it. You should gain from it rather than allowing those times of personal suffering to continue to bring this unbearable pain, these dreadful memories. You keep reliving it. You keep having these reminders that happen in your life. You keep having these, these memorials. You keep having these annual celebrations of your of your pain. And you, you, you've got to stop it. You've got to stop it. You've got to stop it. You're supposed to understand what God is. Can do for you and through your suffering is to make you a better person than you ever would have been otherwise. It's time when the anniversary comes of your pain for you to say, Thank God for turning me into who I am today. And quit letting the devil beat you up over it. If you've let God do His work in your life, you're better than you used to be. Rejoice in that. I'm not glad I had to suffer. I'm just glad I got through it. I'm glad I know how to survive. I'm glad God sustained me. I'm glad I know firsthand God was there for me. I don't want to do it again. But if I must, I know by experience He will carry me and He will be glorified. You know why this is a very relevant topic today? Because we're living in this unique age. We've got a young generation here that have been taught that they shouldn't have to suffer. This started a few years back when there were no more first place trophies. Everybody gets a participation trophy because nobody should have to feel bad. And we have coddled a generation that grows up, that doesn't understand how to survive suffering, how to endure defeat, how to overcome adversity. I, I, I've seen, and Lord help me, I don't want to get fired for saying this, but I'm too old to care. I have seen in my pastoral experience, I have seen people that have come bringing birthday gift presents for the birthday recipient, but they also brought presents for the siblings because they didn't want to feel them to feel bad and left out, because we've adopted this mentality that nobody should have to suffer. And it's, it has permeated our culture. We just don't want anybody to feel bad. I'll tell you, I, I, had a, I had a staff pastor working for me one time that every time they went to a birthday party, they made sure that their son that went with them got to open a present and pretend like it was his birthday too. That's enough to fire a staff person, isn't it? What is wrong with this mentality? You're trying to guard and protect everybody. And the reason I'm telling you this is not to be a, a nosy, busybody and not to lose my job. It's because I'm trying, to, I'm trying to demonstrate to you how much this has permeated the way we think as a culture these days. We shouldn't have to suffer. You know, the hardest thing that I ever did as a parent is to force my children to go walk through things that I could have ran interference for them. The hardest thing, I remember one of my kids, and I'm going to tell you which one, that they were having trouble in school, and they really wanted me to go over there and fix that teacher. And as far as I'm, con- as far as I'm concerned, the teacher was being totally unfair. Parents always think that. But in this case, it was true. And I said, you fix it. You go talk to him about it. You confront him. You're my dad. You're supposed to be there for me. I'm trying to build you into a man. I can't fix all your problems. I'm trying to teach you how to fix your problems. Because if I don't do that, you're going to grow up to be a wimp. And it's hard, hard for me. Every fiber in my being wanted to go over there and throttle that teacher. And especially when my son laid the guilt trip on me, what I ought to do as a dad, what I ought to do as a dad is teach you how to stand on your own two feet. That's hard to do. It's a different theology of suffering. Suffering builds us, it hardens us, it improves us, it grows us up. That's why it's a relevant topic that I'm speaking today. We coined the term snowflakes for a young generation that can't handle controversy. They can't handle the hardships of life. Colleges have to provide safe spaces with crayons for them to go color because they have been offended because somebody else has a different opinion than they do. Special counselors to help mitigate their suffering when some lady else criticizes them. And this is what our colleges are doing because they don't want people to suffer. But if you have a good biblical theology of suffering, you're not going to be be crippled by the false expectations and false hope that this world believes in. What we need is what the saints of the early church had. This deep-seated conviction that you might as well just count it a joy and a privilege to suffer for God. Quit complaining. Quit thinking this is not fair. And quit thinking why me and nobody else? Because everybody else hadn't told you their problems. That's why it looks like it's you and nobody else. And just realize that a good biblical theology of suffering is I need to count it all joy when I suffer for God. And he can do something in me that he must think desperately needs to be done. Would you bow your heads?